then it is right now April 19th. It is 2015. I am not a guest speaker. I just happened to shave. It was time, you know? And, uh, you know, if, uh, if it grossly offends you, it, it grossly offends me. I didn't realize I was this ugly. I would have covered it up uh, for good. Having said that, isn't it good that your hair can grow again? Oh, man. If you don't like where you're at in the kingdom right now, you can grow again. Amen? Our message this morning is called Reproduction. And uh, I want to start with you in Genesis 1 and verse 21. Are you there? Y'all going to have to talk to me this morning. Half of us are somewhere else this morning, so I need the half of you that are here to actually be here. Yeah? Are you here? Okay. So, in Genesis 1, 21, so God created the creatures of the sea and every... Every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their, according to their, every winged bird, according to its, and God saw that it was good. This is the basis for kingdom, phylum, class, order, genus, species. God set those things according to their kind. Look at it in Genesis 7 and verse 14. Say there when you were there. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind. All livestock according to their... Every creature that moves along the ground according to its... And every bird according to its... Do you get the idea? Now let us turn to John 3. When you get to John 3, don't give up on me. We should hear pages turning. If you're already tired, this is going to be a long service for you. We are not a scripture light church. The only seeker we are interested in being sensitive to is the Holy Ghost that is seeking his church. In John 3, look at verse 6. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the See, from Genesis all the way through the Gospel of John, you give birth according to your kind. That's the way that that works. So you will never see a chimpanzee give birth to an elephant. You will never see an elephant give birth to a giraffe. It simply will not work. And you cannot find lukewarm, dead, compromised Christianity giving birth to Pentecost. It will never happen. We're pretty sure... That we can do it a different way, but get the right result. And I want to explain this morning and show you from the scripture with all of my heart that there is one pattern of reproduction in the Bible and one only. All other plans have failed and failed miserably. We don't need new plans. We need men who will adhere to the good plan in the name of Jesus. Can somebody say amen in the house of God? If you're incapable of reproducing, one of the ugly words that can be said is that you are sterile. Another way that the word sterile can be used is it's absolutely free for microorganisms. Usually when you say your dental instruments are sterile, that's a good thing, right? Because there's no contaminants. 
Nothing that might give life to a virus inside of you or bacteria inside of you. But the church was never supposed to be sterile. It was never supposed to be in a situation where it produced adherents, listeners, attenders that did not reproduce the kingdom and their lives and the lives of the people around them. That was never... A sterile church is a church that cannot reproduce. Which begs the question, what does it look like when we reproduce? I mean, is 50 reproduction? Is 100? Is 5,000? When? And, and if you have 5,000, is that reproduction? There is something in the human body that reproduces... But it's abnormal. When a cell reproduces itself and it does not function as the original cell did, that is called cancer. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants it. We've all declared war on it. And despite all man's medical advancements, it still exists in the human body and it still exists in what is called the church. Because we have termed growth reproduction. Can I tell you there are growths that you do not want? I mean, you say, all I want to do is grow. Well, good, we'll give you a third arm coming right out the center of your back. How would you feel about that? Well, no, that's not the kind of growth I want. Then why do we say any growth in a church is good growth? Why would we ever say something like that? Why would we do whatever it takes to get an ear to grow off of one of our lower thighs? Why would you do that? It'd be grotesque, wouldn't it? You'd probably go see a surgeon immediately. But as long as something is growing in size, then it must be healthy. This is what the church growth experts have told us, but it is not what we have found to be true. And I find it woefully short of the scriptural precedent. Could you pick up with me in 1 Peter 2? I want to talk to you about ancient building techniques for a minute. In 1 Peter... The second chapter, 1 Peter, the second chapter, slide down to the fourth verse. As you come to him, who is him, church? Say his name. Say his name like you know him. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. What is the first characteristic that you hear about the stone who is Jesus? He's alive. The second one is, he's rejected. Understand that if the whole world loves it and goes after it, it does not fit the pattern of Jesus. Jesus himself said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. We can either have the favor favor of our father or the popularity of our brothers, but you cannot have both. Ask Joseph. I have no desire to be on the Oprah Winfrey show. None. She's of the wrong spirit. She promotes the wrong spirit. Her name is a corruption of the biblical name, and that is prophetic about her life. She's a remarkable woman, fearfully and wonderfully made by God, full of talents. But if you love her, understand something. You, I mean, love her, the work product of her life, not her. If you love the fruit that comes from her, then you love something God hates because they deceive millions. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to Him. Very often being precious to God means you are not precious 
to some of the populace on the planet, maybe even the majority of the populace on the planet. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For the scripture says, just prior to reading that scripture, I think when you hear this, how many of you have built a house from the ground up in your lifetime? Two people in here. There's a time period where if you ask that question, every person in the audience would have to raise their hand. Just like if I ask you how many of you killed your own food this week to eat, how many would that be? Not one hand. But there was a time period where everybody had to kill their own food. Understand, if we're going to talk about building a house and nobody in the room's ever built a house, we have a gap. If we're going to talk about a bloody sacrifice and nobody's ever put the knife to an animal they love to feed their family, we have an understanding gap. The original audience did not have that. They had seen in their own lives and in the lives of everybody building houses around them one pattern. And you know what they did? Just like you'd go get architectural plans, if you're going to build a building of any size, they chose a stone called the cornerstone that all other stones would have to be squared to. Every measurement was taken from the same stone. Every stone was set next to that original to compare its size, its height, its width, its depth, its weight. And if it did not measure up to that stone, it was rejected. The first stone laid was the cornerstone and the last stone that was laid was the capstone and they had to match perfectly. Are you understanding? You, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. But who do you have to stack up against? Jesus. Jesus. Standing next to Jesus, how do you feel about your holiness? How do you feel about your love for the Lord? How do you feel about your obedience? This ought to drive every man to one conclusion. I'm woefully short, and it's not okay that everybody's short. I'm not being compared to them. I'm being compared to Christ and asking Him to put the same substance that was in Him in you so that you might rise to become more than you are today. The idea that says, well, every stone that's ever been measured up to Him is short, so we're all just sinners is an excuse to stay a sinner. You're compared with Christ to become like Him, built into a spiritual house. He is a living stone, and you are supposed to be living stones. Do you find it strange that we're a nation that claims to be Christian and we find so little of Christ in our nation? Do you find it strange that in our local churches that claim to be on fire, churches, we find so little of Christ? Do you find it strange that in this building we all purport to love Jesus with all of our heart and so little of the qualities of Jesus can be found here? I hope you find it strange. I hope the gap in the difference offends you so grossly that you could be called poor in spirit and that you would mourn over it so that you could then go on to each of the Beatitudes from there. It is the starting place in the kingdom. 
See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you build according to his design, you cannot go wrong. He is the master architect. Come on, are there any men in this house? How much do you like to follow directions? There's a particular man in this church. I won't, won't say his name, but it's Steve Richards. And Steve has a GPS in his car. And I don't know if I've ever seen Steve actually go the way the GPS says. Ever. It's telling him the entire time. Steve has in him a natural bent to buck direction at all costs. Since the Holy Ghost has gotten a hold of him, it's a fantastic thing because it means he will not just go with the flow. He will not just do what everybody else is doing. He wants to be led of God's Spirit. But let me ask you, you ever get one of those, oh, I don't know, jungle gyms or playhouses? Do y'all remember the one we had in here at one point? You remember that monstrosity? I can build a house in Mexico from floor to ceiling in under three days. And it took me more hours than I can count to put that thing together with lots of help. We opened the instructions for a child's playhouse and it unrolled like a scroll. So I did what most people do. I lined out the pieces, I read the first few directions, decided I could put it together and skipped a few steps. You know what happens when you skip a few steps, don't you? You're getting close to putting the capstone on, and you realize you have seven pieces that are essential that were steps three, four, five, six, seven, and now you have to tear down everything and go back to it. When you build and it does not stack up to the cornerstone, you're asking God to tear down your house if he loves you. If you build according to the cornerstone, it may go slower than you like. It may be more tedious than you like, but in the end, it will look like something that God likes. Are you building according to the pattern? Now, to you you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. I want you to understand the truthfulness of this statement. You may not have caught it the first time. You might have to meditate on it just a little bit. When you decide to build according to any other pattern, you are rejecting God's pattern, and he says it's because you don't believe. See, when you believe, it's precious to you, treasured to you. But when you don't believe, you reject it. So what does it say about your heart if your actions say you reject the pattern? Oh, well, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. And you say that like it's a good thing. You should be frightened by that. Church, there is but one foundation, but one cornerstone, just one pillar. And it is the nature of God as revealed in Christ Jesus. Even Jesus himself appealed to that pattern. In Isaiah 61, could you put one and two on the screen? Church, you stay in the Newer Testament for just a minute. You'll recognize this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. First thing that would mark Jesus' ministry was he was anointed. The second thing, 
He would preach good news to a specific group of people, the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In Jesus' own hometown, in Luke 4.18, standing in his hometown, he proclaimed this. And you know what? The people didn't like it. They were offended by it. Their actions showed that they were rejecting the cornerstone. They were rejecting the pattern. If some didn't like it, what do you think about those who did? How do you think Jesus spoke to those who did? Turn with me to Matthew 11. When you get to Matthew 11, be prepared to see a pattern. Say there when you were there. In Matthew 11, picking up in verse 4, actually 2, verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect something else? Have I been running in vain? Have I believed wrongly? This is Jesus' own cousin. This is Jesus' fellow minister. And he's doubting. Are you mad at him for doubting? You're supposed to examine the pattern. He's at least looking intently to make sure he's not doing this in vain. He didn't excuse himself before he ever started by saying, because I prayed a prayer when I was eight, I'm good, you know? He's approaching the finish line. And it's become more important now than ever that he knows he's not made a mistake. And listen to what Jesus says to him. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Is there anybody in here that says, why didn't Jesus just tell John, yes, I'm the one? He did. John knew what to look for. He knew what the deeds were supposed to look like. He knew what the fruit of the messianic ministry would be. And Jesus never appealed personally to himself. John, I'm your cousin. How can you doubt me? John, we've known each other so long. How can you do this? John, what did I ever do to cause doubt? He didn't do any of that. He said, you either do or do not see that pattern in me. Look at John, the 10th chapter. When you get to John 10, slide down and find, say, verse 37. Do not believe me. Somebody say that. Unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand. The father is in me and I am in the father. How many churches could live by this axiom? Well, look, I know you don't see the gifts of the spirit here. That's because we reserve those for a closet. I mean, a, a home meeting. We're too ashamed to do it in front of all of you. It might run somebody off. Look, I know you don't hear much preaching about sin here. That's because we do that in private counseling sessions. We're scared that if the larger crowd knew 
that were actually concerned about sin, it might not give them their best experience from the parking lot to the sanctuary and back to the parking lot. We sound like theme parks. There was one pattern. Jesus appealed to the pattern. When he's accused of terrible thing, he said, don't believe me. Believe what you see me doing. Could you say that? Could I say that? Should we be able to say that? When you're thinking on such an important topic, perhaps we could look at Mark 16. When Jesus gave the Great Commission and the young man John Mark wrote this down, listen to the way that he writes it. It's Mark 16, starting in verse 15. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. What will accompany those who believe? These signs. In my name, they will drive out demons. We don't even believe there are demons. Pastor, we got a psychiatrist that deals with that. How does a man full of demons cast out demons? How does that happen? Oh, no, no. He's a Christian psychiatrist. You show me that in the Bible. He's a Christian counselor. Also... You have the right to change the fivefold ministry. It originated with you. I mean, God, forget his instruction, just skip to number 17 in your amendment and throw the pastor and the prophet under the bus and go to a counselor that you have to pay. Why? Because I don't like God's way. And I just don't want to tell you that. He knows my heart. Oh, come on now. I've seen more harm come from breaking the pattern. I've seen more harm than I've ever seen good from it. I'm going to tell you the good is only temporary. Walking on the narrowing road may make your broad shoulders sore, but the alternative is to throw your body into torment forever. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. But we find that divisive. No, you know what's divisive? is the church that has ignored the letter to the Corinthians that says, do not forbid speaking in tongues, and instead has forbid it. So, oh, well, we're all Christian brothers. How far can you get from the cornerstone, friends? How far can you get from it? Can you be a Christian and have error? Of course, that's how we're sitting here. Can you be committed to disobedience to the Scripture lifelong? You know why the doctrine of the carnal Christian is wrong? It's because they don't live. To be carnally minded is dead. You stay carnal long enough and you will cease to be a Christian. It's just a matter of time. How important is it that you examine yourself according to the pattern? They will pick up snakes with their hands and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. The heart that points to the snake in this verse and says, what, are we supposed to do that too? You'd have to lay hands on yourself to do that, to handle the snake. Church, Jesus Christ said clearly, these signs follow those that believe. Say, well, which one? How many? What do I have to do? Don't you want to do everything that the Lord called you to do? How many of you would like to see a faith that raises the dead? 
If you don't ever run into a dead person, I promise there'll never be the occasion. So don't worry about the snakes. Okay? Unless you're in the woods in South Louisiana, you're probably not going to run into a snake. Unless we're talking about the other variety that often worms its way through pews. Church, this is not antiquated. This is not backwards. This is not archaic and it's not wrong. This is the pattern. How far can you stray from that pattern? Let me ask you something. If we're going to take your birth certificate, I don't know, there's never controversy over birth certificates. We're going to take your birth certificate and I'm going to transcribe it for you. How many errors are you going to allow in it? Look, I mean, I know you were born in 19 whatever and I just wrote 18, it's one error, get over it. How many of you would be happy with that? How, how many of you would be happy if I got your birthplace wrong? You'd be happy if you're from Louisiana and somebody got your birthplace wrong. Be from anywhere else. Pick it. Even Mississippi these days. Church, what I'm trying to tell you is the pattern can't be deviated from or what we have is a fraud. You know? The difference between a reproduction and a fraud is simply the quality. You understand? When you're thinking on these kind of subjects, I'm often asked things like, you're not afraid to go there? Sometimes there is Mexico. My friend was held at gunpoint last night at a house that I've been to many times, on a street I've been to many times, in a truck that my closest friends gave to him. They threatened his wife, they threatened his daughters, and they threatened his life. And in all of their threats and all of their bluster and all of the demonic fury, they weren't able to harm any of them. You're not afraid? You know what I'm most afraid of in this world? That I would spend my life in a church that has a form of godliness but denies its power. I am most afraid in my life that I will have been preaching to people who considered themselves saved and never actually encountered Jesus Christ. That's what I'm afraid of. Not afraid of Muslims following a pedophile prophet. I'm not afraid of a satanic God named Allah. I'm not afraid of their demonic book or the fact that they cut off heads in the name of their God. I'm afraid that the Spirit of God could depart from us and we not recognize it. It happens when you agree that not all that important. We do it God's way. We can do it any way that we deem successful in our own eyes when measured by our own standards. If the scripture is sufficient, and I agree that it is, the church, when it is actually the church, is every bit as sufficient. The church itself is God's agency on the earth. And the reason we don't feel that way, the reason it doesn't look that way, is because we've never properly identified the church. We think the church is the building and the steeple. The church is the largest group of people and it's never been that way. Let's talk about how to identify the church. Turn with me to Matthew 16. Say there when you were there. If I'm not provoking thought in you yet, 
If I'm not causing you to take a deep breath every now and then, go, is he talking about me? I'm trying. I'm trying to get you to do that. I want you to know that. If I shouldn't be preaching to you, then you have to ask yourself, who should I be preaching to? Someone who's not here? Your neighbor, possibly? If you really believe that way, number one, make sure you've passed the test. And number two, after you've given yourself an A-plus on the test, then ask why your neighbor is not here. And what did you do to get them here? I love you. Love you with all of my heart. And I hope to offend you. I, I hope to step on your toes. I hope with all of my heart to get you to go home and go, that can't be true, and study and come to the same conclusion that I have. Much of what is called the church does not pass the biblical test. That doesn't make me the judge. It just makes us be able to look at pine cone, pine cone, pine cone, strawberry. Which one doesn't belong in this group? How dare you judge me? No, I just recognize strawberries versus pine cones. It doesn't take a great deal of discernment. Would you trust a two-year-old to know the difference between a strawberry and a pine cone? But you don't think that seasoned men of God can tell the difference between Satan and God. He masquerades as an angel of light. Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region, 1613, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still, some, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They're examining Jesus according to the patterns that they have available. We think that we know what John the Baptist was like. We think we know what was Elijah was like. We think we know what Jeremiah was like. We're trying to figure out what box you fit in. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? They were examining Jesus to figure out who he was. You should know about the backdrop of the place that they're standing in. Caesarea Philippi. We're going to put a slide on the screen here. In 20 BC, Herod the Great revived the whole area that is, was called in biblical times Caesarea Philippi. He dedicated it to Augustus, Caesar Augustus, and he built him a temple there. Herod was a sellout king of the Jews and in deference to the ruling power in the world so that the ruling power in the world would find the Jews acceptable. Herod decided that he could build the temple honoring Augustus Caesar at the site Caesarea Philippi. Augustus reigned from January 16th, 27 B.C. to August 19th, A.D. 14. So he was in power when Jesus was born. Tiberius followed him from about 14 to 37. So when you're reading Bible times, most of it is Augustus and Tiberius. When you're thinking on these guys, something that you may not have known that you should know. Augustus Caesar was considered to be the son of God. He was considered to be the son of God by Romans because the, the prophet Virgil, I say prophet, the poet Virgil, in the year 42, said that he saw a comet that was Julius Caesar ascending to heaven. And for two years, they paid people to sing that Julius Caesar 
had ascended to heaven. It was Roman propaganda so that the emperors would be viewed as more than men. Roman commercials, flyers, handouts, mailers. Whatever it took to create the perception that there was something more than just a man there. Augustus Caesar was his adopted son, actually his nephew. The day of Augustus' birth began being celebrated with 12 days of Advent. Every year on the Roman calendar for 12 days, at the temple to Augustus Caesar, they gave gifts for 12 days prior to his birth. The poets poets were proclaiming peace and joy to the world because Augustus would certainly bring universal or Catholic peace to the world as God's son. The slogan that he ran on and appeared on coins during his reign, during the early years of Jesus' life, was there is no name save Augustus by which men can be saved. That's what was on the coins, Roman coins when Jesus was walking the streets of Israel. Augustus Caesar ordered a priesthood in his temple that maintained the rights to forgive sins if you gave enough money. They sold indulgences. That temple stood right next to the opening to that cave. We'll come back to that one. Let's go to the next one. These are some of the foundation stones from the temple that date to Jesus' time. So in Jesus' time, he was standing on these stones in Caesarea Philippi with the temple to Augustus Caesar, the Son of God, meant to bring peace and joy to the earth. There is no name save Augustus by which men must be saved, offering an alternative to a sacrificial death. You could just pay and everything would be good. Let's go to the next one. It's hard to make out on this screen. What you see right in this area is the beginning of a line that goes up in curves. It's a giant grotto where they put images. Images, in this case, of Augustus Caesar in a most interesting pose. Let's go to the next one. This placard tells you that they positively identified that from the time of 19 B.C. there was a temple being built here and that it eventually was dedicated to Augustus Caesar. Let's go to the next slide. My friend here, Gary Williams, is pointing at an opening in the cave because there was a rushing river that came through this area. And in worship to Augustus Caesar and also the Grotto of Pan that was there, and also a female deity named Diana, they threw live sacrifices, babies, into this river that goes into this cave. And then they ran to the other side to see whether blood came out. If blood came out, the, the, the cave, they said the gods accepted it. If blood did not come out the cave, we got to throw some more in. Jews referred to this place as the gates of hell. Let's go to the next one. This large grotto is where Pan's statue was. I can't even describe Pan's statue in this company. It was 
shaped in a way that um, would be fitting for a lot of 24-hour stores in this town. Okay, let's go to the next one. This shows a... Um, actually, I'll show you what this shows. I have a blown-up picture of this next. Let's go to the next one. This is an artist reenactment of what this looked like based on the archaeology that's there during the time of Christ. This is the backdrop to who do men say that I am. Pan is standing back there. Augustus Caesar is standing back there. Diana, the goddess of the Ephesians, standing back there. The Ephesians called her Artemis. The Romans called her Diana, a virginal goddess with a celibate priesthood, right next to a, a group of people that sold indulgences, right next to people that practiced sexual immorality, all claiming to be true. Who do men say that I am, Jesus says. This is the backdrop. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. I tell you, you are a little pebble. You are Peter. And on this rock, this boulder, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The chief cornerstone of the church is that a man can receive a revelation from heaven of the character and nature of God that transforms his life. What do we do then when somebody takes a revelation like grace, the power that appears that teaches you to say no to godliness and instead they teach grace is a license for immorality. Well, it doesn't match the cornerstone. It didn't come from the heavens. Well, it may have come from a well-meaning man. Yes, who had an exceedingly wicked heart from birth. The rock that God would build upon was what had been revealed from heaven. Let me ask, I do this a lot, and I, and I think you may be getting desensitized to it, but I want to ask, if you're put in isolation for four hours right now, only a white piece of paper and a black pen, and all you could put on that paper, the only thing you could write on it was what had been revealed to you personally from heaven, could be confirmed somewhere else, but it originated in heaven, and only that, would it fill the paper? Would it complete a sentence? What does it mean to say, give us this day our daily bread? Are you running on everyone else's revelation? And how will you know whether it actually matches the cornerstone or not? Say, well, they're preaching out of the same Bible you are. So did the devil. You hear me? So did the devil. He quoted scripture fervently. I heard the other day, I heard a grown man stand at this altar and say clearly, if you agree with five scriptures, you are saved. Whose idea is that? Where do you find that in the word? Something that he's simply been told and he's repeating it. And he's repeating it to people who are repeating it. Show me that in the scripture. It is not there. Demons agree that there is one God. They tremble at His name, but they are not saved. 
Knowing the scripture is true is not salvation. It does not match the cornerstone. And what happens when a church is defined by things that don't match the cornerstone? Church, the pattern, the pattern is important. In the midst of all of these competing patterns, Pan, Artemis, Augustus Caesar, Peter was revealed the right one. And Jesus said, that's exactly how I'm going to build my church. Right there. That's it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I skipped such an important phrase. I'm going to read it again. Verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Everything about the pattern that Jesus laid down was in absolute contradiction. Not just to the backdrop behind him, but what society approved all around him. And it's no different today. The backdrop today in our nation is that we're Christian, but it's not a real Christianity. The backdrop around us is that church, they're preaching out of the Bible. Oh, I know the Sunday school teacher is sleeping with people in the church and the pastor knows it, but it's still church. We've been in it 20 years and nobody's transformed, but it's still church. I mean, after all, look at all the people. that It does not match the cornerstone. Have you ever read that our work will be tested with fire and much of what is built will be burned up. Oh God, do you want to build the biggest bonfire? Is that your goal? I got a feeling we're building bonfires everywhere. Do you know why? They're not marked by holiness. They're not marked by the things that mark. The biggest one is they reproduce what they are, but they do not reproduce what Jesus is. I was paid the highest compliment that I've ever been paid in my life yesterday. A pastor looked and says, it seems to me that every five years out of LCMF seems to come men that can do exactly what the leaders at LCMF can do. Well, that's exciting. The truth is that's true in almost every church. You need to look and see what those leaders are doing, though. Watering down the gospel, appealing to men's pride, creating a circus environment for the church, or walking in the holiness of God. Church, we're supposed to reproduce. Jesus told the men who followed him, come and I will make you fishers of men. So let me ask you. No, I'm not going to ask you. I'm asking the mythical group of people that are standing behind you because I wouldn't want to hurt your feelings. If you're fishing for men, when's the last time you caught something? If Jesus said, I'm going to all the world to make disciples, when's the last time you made one? He said, man, you're putting us under a heavy burden. I didn't. I received the same thing you did. Last week we heard this scripture is sufficient. We heard this scripture came from God. We heard every word of it is perfect. We heard all of those things. Well, what do we do with you have to produce 30, 60, and 100-fold crop? At some point, you're going to come to the gripping conclusion that only part of your life belongs to the Lord. And then you're going to be faced with the question, is that, is that good enough? Is that the pattern? Is that what we see in the first generation that followed Jesus, a part-time commitment 
to Jesus. Well, it's quiet, huh? Perhaps when we think of this, we could find something positive for our day. Is it safe to say that hell has got an onslaught being poured against us? Just in this last week, I can't tell you the number of hellish things that have attacked my family. Can't tell you the number of hellish things that we've come against. Good thing that the church of Jesus Christ stands against the gates of hell and the gates of hell cannot overcome it. Can we show that next picture? I want to show you what a gate looks like in Israel. I took this picture of the Damascus gate. And this is built in uh, the centuries following Christ on top of the gates that were there. So it's a poor approximation of the first century, but it gives you some idea. This is the entrance to the city. And since rulers got to decide who did and did not enter their city, you had to appeal to the monarch or his officials. You had to be recommended by the officials to the monarch to be admitted into the city. Because, I mean, after all, you could, you could be carrying a plague. They'd kill everybody inside the walls. You could have nefarious intent. You could be there to subvert the rule of the monarch. You could be there for any reason. And they were supposed to examine you and determine whether or not you could come into the city. You see why we have all the jokes about St. Peter at the gates of heaven? St. Peter is not at the gates of heaven, and that is a ridiculous concept. It's just medieval lore. And yet what this does tell us and reflect upon is an earlier time when the judges sat in the gates of the city. It was a place that indicated government. What Jesus is actually saying, standing in a place of Caesar worship, the most powerful man in the world at the time, according to the world, standing in the place of Artemis, a ridiculous female deity that lives today under another name, standing in the place of Pan, worshipped in places like Las Vegas in New Orleans, and many computers. Jesus said, this government, these gates cannot prevail against my church. How do you identify the church? They're the ones that overcome hell, and hell does not overcome them. So, oh, well, that church is just going through a rough spot. Jesus Christ said the gates of hell would not prevail against your church. Maybe more exciting than that. You first look at the word gates, and you go, why is it plural? Gates? How many different kind of attacks have you faced in your life? You know, when you're 25, there's one kind of attack. And when you're 50, it appeals to all the same areas of the flesh, but totally different ways. You know, the young man seems to have a problem keeping his eyes off the girl that jogs by. Remember that, ladies, when you're wearing certain clothes. But the man who's 50 seems more attracted to the secretary that thinks that he's amazing. It's more, more drawn to her admiration of him than he is drawn to the one that's just running by. And it's exactly the same attack. It's just a different gate. But it's not only gates that's plural. Keys is too. I will give you the keys to the kingdom. When you build according to the cornerstone, when you're filled with the very substance of God, you have an answer for every devilish attack. They will never overcome you because you 
are building upon the cornerstone. If you're being overcome right now, you need to examine yourself and see if you're in the church. If you go to a church that is defined by being overcome, we're just poor, miserable victims entitled to mercy and benevolence from everywhere because we will never in a million years stand on our own two feet. If that is you, you have built according to some pattern that is not God's pattern. When it comes down to it, a church is a little bit like an embassy, an agency. Right now, you can go to Mexico without ever crossing the border of Mexico. They have a consulate, an embassy here in Houston. And when you step through their gates, you're standing on sovereign soil of Mexico in that moment. The administration that is recognized there is Mexico. The officials there are from Mexico. The law that governs inside that embassy, although it's sitting in the United States, it is sitting on Mexican soil. That's what a church is supposed to be. We're seated right here in Texas, but we're of the substance of heaven. When you walk through these doors and meet the people that are the church, you're meeting the ambassadors of God. How important is it that an ambassador matches the one for whom he represents? You know why people look for any other pattern They deem Jesus just too hard, not enough fun, and not worth it because they never actually met him. They've only been told about him from other people. Look, what's the minimum I can do? If I'm here one Sunday a month, will that appease y'all? If I throw some change in the plate, will that appease y'all? If I go through a a 14-point class, will that appease you? Church, we're supposed to be receiving revelation from the heavens on our own daily. Daily. What ambassador could break communication with their sovereign since they were eight and one time had a warm, fuzzy prayer and still say they represent him today? Are you hearing me? He doesn't just want you to represent him. He doesn't just want you to be structurally like him. Luke 24, 49 says he wants you to be clothed with power from on high. See, it'd be one thing if he said, here's the ruler, now where are you? He'd say, well, the ruler's right here and I'm here. It'd be one thing if that's all that happened. How miserable would that be? You'd go to church every day and what you'd find out is I don't measure up. That's the first half of the sermon. The second half of the sermon is you get to put on his lifts in your shoes. The second half of the sermon is you get to clothe yourself with him. And just in case somebody would think that's an imposter, like I'm wearing his coat, but I'm not him, he puts himself inside of you. He even gives you his word to speak out of your mouth. He even says, kind of like putting on a glove, when you put your hands, it's like I'm putting my hands. Because he wants you to represent him. How dedicated do you have to be to the actual cornerstone, though? When you're thinking on that subject, and I hope you still are, it's going to determine what you reproduce. Perhaps this is why Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem until you have received the gift my Father promised. And in Acts 1.8, he said, but when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will receive power. Walk around 
without power and say you that, that you represent Jesus, well, then you've made Jesus powerless to the whole world. You walk around without holiness and say you represent Jesus, you've made Jesus unholy to the whole world. You emphasize fun and entertainment over pleasing the Father in the name of Jesus, and that's what you've made Jesus to the whole world. Just party, Jesus. Is that all right? Is that okay? Maybe this is why those signs don't follow so many. Maybe they don't believe. Maybe they don't actually love the pattern. Maybe they love the pattern that they've made themselves. I want to warn you before we move forward of the heaven already gospel. I think that's what I'm going to call it from here on out. Read with me Luke 16, 25. Heaven already gospel. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Well, Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Beware of the heaven already gospel because the entire parable of Lazarus and the rich man was about a, a, a beggar who is being overlooked and a rich man who has all he needs now and not a concern for anything but himself. And the rich man ends up in torment and the beggar ends up in paradise. Do you really want heaven already? Do you really want... <clears throat> Every day to be Friday. You really want your best life right now? Is that really what you want? Or do you want to be poured out like a drink offering? Do you want to make your life slavery to Christ? Do you want with all of your heart to fill up what is lacking in regards to the suffering of Christ? Do you want with all of your heart to know the fellowship of suffering that Paul spoke about? Would you... Count yourself worthy and rejoice when you suffered for the name of Jesus or would you be disappointed that you were not getting heaven right now? Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me the world's not off of its axis with a message that is most popular and is being preached everywhere and is contaminating the clothing we're wearing. Church, we are supposed to come in having examined the cornerstone and see what he did for us, saying, what would you allow me to do for you? No matter what it is. I can't go any further than you did. You went to the point of death. What can I do for you? That's supposed to define the church. Not selfishness. Not man-centered. We misrepresent Christ when we talk about sevenfold blessings. We, we misrepresent Christ when we make the point of the gospel your prosperity or your happiness. The point of the gospel is to make disciples, to reproduce what Christ is. Well, we have 10,000 people, yes, but do you have any of them that you would say are like Christ? Oh, yes, there's a remnant in every church. And you're satisfied with that? Have you ever heard that 10% of the church supports the other 90%? Have you ever heard that that's the rule? You're guaranteed that that's not a church then. Do you know how you know that? If 90% of the people don't care enough about God to support the work of the Lord, His agency on the earth, with their money, the 90% of the people are not the church even if they attend the building. 
Why, where else would we go and say 90% of those staff physicians are not really doctors, but it's still a hospital? Where else would you do that? Why did Christ get the lowest standard? Do you want only 10% truth? Or do you want the whole thing? I want the whole thing. When you're thinking of the beware of the heaven already gospel, please consider this. Old is better. We're always looking for something new, but turn with me to Luke 5, start in verse 37. We're always looking for the next new thing. What's a new way to get my church to grow? What's a new way to, to grab people's attention? This year, if, if we had elephants, next year we have to have giraffes. I mean, how can we top what we did last year? What can we do that is new? I mean, can we just freshen things up a bit? Sure, get full of the Holy Ghost. Let his wind blow through your temple. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. Hold on that verse. Let them contemplate this. What you've heard almost universally preached about this is that we need to be new wineskins, not old wineskins. Right? Oh, God, we want the new wine, the new wine, the new wine. We even sing about the new wine in our songs. Give us new wine and let us be new wineskins. And we have so missed the point. Why do you need to be a new wine, new wineskin? Because you have to be able to flex so that God can bring about fermentation and what you have is old wine. You are inherently not shaped right right now. You are inherently wrong right now. But if you are new, you are flexible enough to repent. I'll prove it. Let's go to the next verse. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new, for he says the old is better. Have you ever even noticed that verse before? What's better than new wine? Why do you have a new wineskin? What is the purpose? To produce old wine. And it takes time. All right. If we could get an interpretation right, it might lead us in the right direction. Let's, let's grab this then. I'm not against emergent. I'm not against new if it's God, but new for the sake of being new is absolutely wrong. The point is to get what Abraham had, Amen. not something new. The point is to be flexible enough now to change, repent, grow, do whatever it takes to get what has already been revealed as the pattern. We don't need a new cornerstone. We don't need a new program. We don't need new. We need to be made new so that we can be put in the old image. This thought has so permeated the church, we actually see the Old Testament is old and irrelevant when Jesus actually says, the old is better. Let me prove it to you. Go to Genesis 15. The reason the old is better is it's where it originated and nothing has changed. We're still building according to the same pattern. In Genesis 15, are y'all still awake? Yeah. In Genesis 15, after this, after what? After warfare, after leaving home, after seeing dad die, after seeing brother die, after wife's barren, after he messed up and lied, after his 
own uh, nephew uh, chose a man-centered gospel, (laughs) the best for me right now, after all of this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. If you were going to say word of the Lord, in Hebrew you would say Debar Yahweh, the word of the Lord. In Greek you would say Logos to Theos, the word of God. What did we find out in the Gospel of John became flesh? The word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. What came to Abram in a vision? The word of the Lord appeared to Abraham in a vision. And what does he say to him? Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your very great reward. Does that sound like a man whose heaven is absolutely best heavenly life now? Or like a man that needs to be comforted because he's under constant bombardment. He's fighting the agonizing fight of faith. In the midst of his own failure, in the midst of his relatives' defections, in the midst of adversity on every side, the word of God appears and says, I will be your reward. I will be your shield. I'm enough. You don't have to break out and do something New to wow the people. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my state is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir. We're not going to change the plan. There's always been the same plan. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and it was. Don't talk to me about the law bringing salvation or or anybody having to believe the law to be saved. Abraham believed the word of the Lord that was revealed from heaven to him. And it showed up in his actions. See, friends, the old is better. I'll take a thousand guys who have heard from heaven and it shows up in their actions. Over a hundred thousand guys that are just parroting what you told them to say and none of you actually believe it. So, no, no, we do believe it. We all believe it. We even signed our profession of faith. Yes, but there are no signs that accompany you. So what does that say? Hey, I'm a doctor, but I've never healed anybody. I'm a surgeon, but all my patients have died. You know, the only discipline we put up with that in is psychiatry. Less than a 3% approval rate, success rate, like healed rate. You know why? You know why we do it? Because we hate the only alternative that actually works, the Word of God. Old is better. Everything's going to give birth according to its time. Kind. We have to build according to a pattern. The nature of the church is that it overcomes. If you see something that is not overcoming, it is not acting like it is not the church. What we actually want when we say we want something new is us to be made new so that we can get what is old, ancient even. Go to the ancient ways. Jeremiah 6. It was a prophecy this morning. Jeremiah 6, 16. Go out to the crossroads, to that ancient path. We don't need a new path. We don't need a new enlightenment. We need to be renewed so that we can receive what is 
an ancient pattern. I want to show you the scroll of Isaiah. This is a website with the Dead Sea Scroll. This is actually 54 chapters of Isaiah right there. And when you hover over it, it translates it into your language. This was found in the Qumran Valley in 1947. And it's very interesting because there was a, there was a, a crisis going on in the church. How can you know for sure that when you read the copy of Isaiah in your Bible, you're reading the same copy as the one Jesus had. So earlier, when Jesus appealed to John by telling him what he did that had been written about by Isaiah, Isaiah wrote in 720 B.C., John lives in the first century A.D., 700 years have passed. Well, now more than 2,000 years have passed. How could you know that what you were reading matched the one that he was reading? Because it's a problem. Is what I'm looking at a fraud or is it an exact duplicate? A reproduced document. 1947, they found out that this one matched the one that Jesus held perfectly. Let me ask you, is that important to you? Is it important to you that the Bible that you have contains no errors? Is it? Yes. Raise your hand if it's not important to you. Then why is it not important to you that the church that you support, you love you attend, you work at. Why is it not important to you that it contains no errors? Why are you so tolerant of what everyone does? Is, oh, well, it's just how they do it. Aren't people going to look at that copy and wonder, is this the same church that Jesus started? I mean, if you looked at this copy of Isaiah and it was grossly different than the one that Jesus read, what would that lead you to believe? You can't trust your Bible wonder why so many people don't trust the church. Are you hearing me yet? This is sacred. It's sacred. Why are you so adamant about it? Why are you so fired up about it? I don't have the right to change it. In fact, it needs to be verified. That's what ordination actually is. It needs to have a chain of custody. In other words, it needs to be handed down as something precious from generation to generation. I want to show you what that looks like. Here's 2 Timothy. Turn there. Are you all done? It's, uh, it's 1225. I've, I've now been preaching an hour and four minutes. Is that just all you can handle? You know, Star Wars is coming out in December. They say that it's going to be nearly three hours. If you go to a movie and it's 59 minutes long, you feel cheated. How could I have paid $8 for this? You go to a church service and it's an hour and one minute and you feel angry. Have you ever read something like Nehemiah 8, Joy of the Lord's My Strength? Oh, yeah, the Joy of the Lord's My Strength. Oh, yeah, I'm excited about it too. Do you know that they read all five books of Moses while standing that day? Did you know that? How many of you would attend that service? You know, it was common practice, common practice at Jewish feast 
to read the entire book of the law in one sitting? Your daily Bible plan, those of you that have them, what's it take, seven, eight minutes? <clears throat> There's a pattern. 2 Timothy 1 in verse 3. I thank God whom I serve. What's that next phrase? Are you kidding me? Those Jews? Yes, the Jews held to the pattern. The old was better. And some, when it came time to add a new stone that matched every other stone that had ever gone before it, couldn't accept it. They rejected it. And it will be the capstone. But Paul accepted it. It measured against Abraham. It measured against Yahweh God. In fact, seeing the deeds of Jesus proved that Jesus was God. And that's what Paul preached. I serve God as my forefathers did. If you believe that you came from a line that God gave a revelation to, Let's just say starting with Abraham. And Abraham gave it to Isaac. And Isaac gave it to Jacob. And God in every situation confirmed it. And Jacob gave it to his 12 sons. And his 12 sons gave it to their sons. Until Moses shows up who gets another stone that matches the original stone. One contiguous revelation. And Moses gives it to Joshua. And Joshua gives it to the elders. And the elders give it to the great assembly. And you were a part of that unbroken chain. How important would it be to get it right? Well, how important is it to have a Bible that's correct? The Apostle Paul, when speaking to churches, said things like Hebrews 13, 7 through 8. Hear this. Let's put it on the screen for everybody to see. Hebrews 13, 7 through 8. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. When did we have the right to change that? Well, we like the way they preach. Yes, but how about how they live? Well, we don't know how they live. We don't live with them. You're supposed to know how they live. When, what gave us the right to change it? How do you imitate the trust of a man that you hear for an hour a week? How do you do that? How, how, how about this one? Go to 1 Corinthians 4, 17. This is actually Paul speaking to Timothy. I should have went to it first. For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son. Was, was Timothy actually uh, the son of Paul? But the pattern that had been handed down said, if you serve as a priest, if you serve in a holy position, because Numbers 8 says, I am taking the Levites in the place of your sons, that everybody who held that holy position was to relate to other people as family members. So you see Paul telling Timothy something like, treat older men like your father. Treat younger men like your brothers. Treat older women like your mother and younger women like your sister because you are like family. Who has the right to change that pattern? For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. How important was it to follow the pattern? 
So much so that he sent somebody who lived with him every day, who understood his entire way of life, and that the teaching and the way of life matched. You think you have the right to do it differently? No, no, we don't have the right, but we're pretty sure those five denominations do. No, no, we don't have the right, but those non-denominationals have the right. Well, why? Because they're big. Does Jesus pass that test? With his 12 or with his 70, does he pass that test? Do Do the numbers justify deviating from the pattern? And let me ask you, how do you know that the growth is the right kind of growth? Are you reproducing men like those original 12? Are you simply reproducing people that can put money in your plate? So how could you teach a message like that? I'll tell you why. Because I hope to entrust something to you. Pastor Sutherland hopes to entrust something to you. Pastor Piro hopes to entrust something to you. We've given it to other men and women. And they are now giving it to other men and women. We want to impart to you a love, an absolute fierce devotion to the sanctity of the pattern that's been handed down from our forefathers. Have you ever read the first chapter, I'm sorry, the first few verses of Corinthians 15? For what I received, that I passed on to you. Have you ever read it? Let me ask you, who discipled you? Who discipled your pastor at your last church? Is there an unbroken chain back to Jesus? Did somebody actually build on the revelation they got from heaven? Are they just little sausages turned out of a factory somewhere that we say it's okay because there's a lot of people, you know? Well, there are a lot of people at the temple to Augustus Caesar, too. He told them exactly what they wanted to hear. There are a lot of people at Artemis Because if you didn't like what Augustus said, there was always Artemis. It was like Luby's Cafe. You just get what you want to eat. We believe that it is sacred, that the Scripture is sacred. Most of all, I believe that this verse in Timothy says almost everything. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. What is the pillar and the foundation of truth? The church. See, in our individualized society, You believe that you are the temple of God. And I guess that's true in as much as an aquarium is the ocean. The actual temple of God is everybody joined together that God is dwelling in and reigning in. That's the temple. And it is the foundation of truth. In other words, just like you can't turn to Isaiah and trust that it's really Isaiah if it's deviated from the pattern Isaiah laid down, when you go into a church... If they've deviated from the pattern that the church laid down, it's no longer the... How many pillars can you pull out of this room before you're worried the roof's going to fall on you? How many of you want to build a house on a foundation and what is built on it doesn't match the foundation? 
Church, this is so important that Paul actually tells Timothy, what I've given you, I need you to trust, entrust to reliable men that they might teach others. You've been given something. I've been given something. And what we do with it says what we think about the one that gave it to us. And if you haven't received it, there's no shame in that. What did Jesus say? You have not because? (laughs) I've already got it. Clearly you don't. No, 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 I've already got it. Stay back, stay back. When did you get it? I got it at eight. What evidence is there that you have it? In the last 40 years? Uh, Just that thing that happened when I was eight. Okay. When I was eight, I declared myself a soldier. When I was eight, I declared myself a fireman. I even stayed at a Holiday Inn once, so what, am I a cardiologist? Does that make it so? See, what people walk in and see in you, because the church is not this building, either matches the pattern or it doesn't. And if it doesn't match the pattern, then the entire foundation and pillars are shaking. Say, Eric, are you saying I'm supposed to be perfect? Yep, you're supposed to aim for it. And every time you identify an area that you're not, you repent immediately. No matter what it is, immediately. Not when you feel like it. Not when it's easy for you to do. Not when it's comfortable. Immediately. You know why? A lost and dying world is supposed to look at us as the pillar and foundation of truth. When Paul said how things ought to be in God's house, when he said that, you know what he's just finished saying? All of the requirements for leaders. I challenge you. I mean, I'm not going to name them. On your way home, write down the name of the churches you see. Go to their websites. See if what they say about their pastor has anything to do with 1 Timothy 3. Because if you can't manage God's household, if you can't manage your own household, you can't manage God's. And we don't care. We've accepted a different pattern. So-and-so choked his daughter, showed up on that. So what? I mean, guy preaches good, you know. So-and-so got a divorce. No problem. I mean, you know, it's happening to us all these days. Who am I to throw stones? You don't have the right to change God's pattern any more than you have the right to go rewrite the book of Isaiah and pass it off as your own new version. Do you want it? Do you want the truth? We say that. We say it. What will you do to get it? If that answer is anything other than whatever it takes, you can be sure you will not get it. Yeah? I want to tell you Wednesday. We're going to take that deposit that started with Abraham. And we're going to show how it went in an unbroken chain all the way down to men living on the planet today and why it's important that you dedicate everything that you are, everything that you have to obtaining it, growing it, and transmitting it. Because these are the marks of disciples. They become what their master is. And churches are turning out members, but they are not turning out disciples, and I will not do it. (laughs) Could y'all stand to your feet?